Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking, film theory, film critique, anything to do with films. In each programme we'll be focusing on a particular film and a theme that's loosely based on this and the idea is to use that one film as a jumping off point to talk about bigger ideas. Uh, after some reviewing, some discussion and argument about if the film's good or not uh, and then into the uh, topic, we'll finish off with some some regular features, things like our recommendations of the week, that kind of thing. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We should start by saying a bit about who we are. So I'm Rob Mayfield. Uh, I spent the last 10 years working on feature films in and around the UK, in and around the world. Um, I work as a film colourist, basically making all the films look pretty. And my name's Sam Knowles. I'm a teacher in a college in Leeds and also write books and articles about other books, comic books, films, whatever. Books about books. Indeed, yes. So I think you should start on our introducing our film for this week and giving us your thoughts. So this week's film uh, is the, the brand new release, Mad Max Fury Road. The, well, not well delayed, but certainly belated fourth instalment of the Mad Max, um, now quadrilogy. I think it's a terrible word, quadrilogy. Um, it takes the story of, of Max, sort of set post the uh, the events of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, uh, in which he gets involved in a, not really spoilers here, but a, a break for freedom with some women from a uh, a tribe in the Australian outback. Now, I absolutely adored this film. I think this film has gone straight into my probably top five films of all time. I thought it was as perfect an action film as I've seen in many a years. Uh, we'll come on to this in, in, in a debate, but I think that the closest thing I can give to it, it's like watching The Matrix for the first time. When it just resets your expectations of what action and what films can do. Uh, I thought that whilst it's probably a little light on dialogue and plot, um, I think that uh, it more than makes up for it in the uh, in the action scenes, which are beautiful and well choreographed and exciting, and it's a cinematic experience uh, more than watching a film. I'd say. Okay. Your thoughts, Sam? Uh, you're not going to like my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, although we, we have had a, a month now of generally agreeing about films so I think it's high time that we had a bit of disagreement um, I, I was listening to um, Mark Homo yesterday um, actually I had him on the car and my partner inquired whether uh, I was listening to myself because apparently you sound like Mark Homo fair enough And um, I do kind of look like him as well if I had more hair Yes, yeah, I suppose so. You just need to cultivate the glasses wearing look. Exactly. Um, it le- less said about your uh, your film knowledge, the better. Um, <laughs> any, anyway, so Mark Howard was talking about um, the difference between um, sort of, I, I don't know, the, what a film is about and what a film actually is and, and sort of the difference between narrative and experience, I suppose. Um, mm. And I, 
I, I see, see what you're saying. Um, and I enjoyed the experience. I thought well, things like there's a pre-credit sequence, action sequence, which is admittedly utterly brilliant. Um, and some of the action sequences were thrilling. And yes, you're right, they were beautifully choreographed and edited. But overall, I just felt that there wasn't enough of a narrative and I didn't enjoy it. Um, I can see how the experience is amazing, but I just didn't get on board with it. I thought there were individual performances that were good. Um, Tom Hardy was, well, Tom Hardy always is good. Charlize Theron was interesting, and Nick Holt was unrecognisable and also really good. But otherwise, uh, yeah. Genuinely, I think you're the first person I've spoken to or seen online who didn't like this film. Okay. It, 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 it's. I mean, everyone has the right to their own opinions. I can believe it, but it, it's been almost overwhelming the support this film's had. Um, and it's it was very interesting for me to see, to see that, that you 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 weren't on board with it. I think the thing that I'm, I I have a vlog I talk about this occasionally. And I talk about this, but I think the thing that really struck home with me about Mad Max is that Mad Max could not exist in any other medium. That's a good lot point. Of film, a lot of films that I love and uh, that could exist as a book. Some of them did start off as books. They could exist as comic books. Um, this podcast could exist as a vlog. It could exist as a TV show. There's many other different formats. There isn't a version of Mad Max Fury Road that isn't cinema. Okay, yeah. And I think that there's... Whilst I, I, I would probably agree that it's quite light on narrative and plot... The reason why it's experienced in cinema is because of that, and that's why I, I link to something like Matrix or even Gravity, mm. for a recent example. Those films could not exist in anything else. Like, you know, I, I, I read the the Matrix comic books; they were dull because it's a cinematic experience. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not going to try and convince you because I think obviously the right to own film. It just for me, it was having talked about Avengers 2 a couple of weeks ago, which we both really enjoyed, this was a wholly different level of experience for me. Um, and it was almost occasionally having to remember to breathe uh, when watching it. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. But I think, I think that, that your enjoyment of this film is going to enjoy whether you enjoy that experience or not. For, for me, it, it, it was... I, I watched a lot of films and nothing very samey for me it was a, a blast out of nowhere of an experience but if you don't enjoy that experience you aren't going to enjoy the film if you see what I'm saying um, there, there were I think I almost prefer your version of the film to the version that I saw because what you're saying makes a whole lot of sense um, and yeah I, I, I really like that idea Although liking an idea doesn't necessarily mean that you like the film behind it. Exactly, exactly. I think that's where we get into sort of text and meta text and subtext and things. And I can enjoy, like, like the Watchmen film. I really like the idea of a Watchmen film. I like the idea that making of taking that story and putting it on screen. And I look at that film and I appreciate all the individual pieces together. But as a whole. It didn't work for me. Mm. That that's one of those things that I saw. They made a film of a of a graphic novel I really liked and thought, mm, yeah, I'm not going to watch that. 
like Persepolis. I haven't seen the film version of Persepolis because I like the book so much. Mm. I think. I mean, I, I come from a, from a film loving point of view first, so I'm always intrigued to see the adaptation of of the things I love, and sometimes like Watchmen, you're like, kind of wish you hadn't. But I think that kind of links back to what I was saying earlier. Whereas Watchmen is so good as a comic book, and it's kind of about comic books, and that may be one of those stories that really its only true form is a graphic novel. And translating it, even as on a shot for shot they did, just doesn't work. In the same way, you could take this, take the storyboard of Mad Max and put it in a comic book form, you could do that, but it would not have the same power that it had on screen. And I think that's the reverse is true of, Mad, of um, Watchmen. And that's why it kind of never sat well with me. It's not worth seeing, to be honest. <laughs> so anti-recommendations, this podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, like, I think I know. I, I'm all for w- w- warning people off bad films, much as I am pointing towards good films. Because uh, if we can encourage a better film market, like that. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast. Let's so, let's talk about some of the specifics of this film. Some of the things that were admittedly really good about this film, because I I, I don't I, yeah. Overall, I didn't enjoy it, but there were there were parts of it that I thought were brilliant. Like what? Um, like certain snatches of the dialogue, um, like the relationship between. Max and the women. I I particularly liked how Tom Hardy behaves right at the beginning of the film with his total lack of trust for anything. I thought that that was really well done. Mm. Um, and some some of the I mean the the line that's not his blood is just cannot fail to be cool. That's just <laughs> really good. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's I mean. One of the things that, that I did love is what I call the little things of this film. Mm. Um, there's just, and I think George Miller does a great job of not explaining them at all. Yeah, um, like the the war boys spray their faces silver when they think they're going to die. Mm. You know, after after Valhalla, and that's never really explained at all. Um, but it was a brilliant little moment. Like, and this kind of moving to a little bit what we're talking about, but the, the mythology of this film internally was I thought very well done. I think that the world building that he does, and he does it in very broad strokes and very kind of without a lot of explanation and reasoning behind things, but it's very kind of little things done very well. Things like Bullet Farm, Gas Town, um especially with um Furiosa, I mean it's come up a lot in sort of the press around it, but the fact that she, spoiler, uh, has got one hand. And at no point in the film is that explained or made a point of. It's just who she is. Yes, I particularly liked... Um, I don't know if this is something I should have known because I came to this entirely cold. I've mean, never seen any of the originals. Ah. Um, although it was was a recommendation of yours that it wasn't necessary to see the originals. So I just it's really not. Um, but uh, the... The half-life of the War Boys is something that was not really explained at all, and you just had to work it out for yourself. And draining blood from those with a full life in order to keep you topped up as a War Boy was something. It was another thing that was just not explained. And I mean, I think having seen all all of the four films, 
they do kind of hint at that it probably was some sort of nuclear war that led to where we are now but it's very much a hint there it's it's very much an unspecified end of the world um the uh road warrior which is bad max 2 has a little sort of preamble that kind of uh explains some things but it's once again it's very broad strokes and you get no details and i think all through the entire film all, all four films it's very much lack of explanation but I think this ties back to what Sam and I were testing off air about the idea of myth and myth within these films and these films as myths. Uh, I think that for me, obviously these these are Australian films uh, made by director generally in Australia. And there's something kind of linked to the Aboriginal tales and the stories of, of the Aboriginal culture that kind of, that I, I feel there's a link between those that sort of cultural uh, world and this cultural world in that a there's a, a supposition of lack of explanation uh, aboriginal tales don't go you know the, there was the wet and the dry and there, isn't, there isn't a lot of uh, with all myths there isn't a lot of well this is why hercules is hercules you know the the myth is based on archetypes and myth structure that kind of thing and i think mad max through all four films, particularly Fury Road, works on that get on board and go for the ride kind of mythology. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, some something else about it is it's interesting that you should bring up the Aboriginal experience because I was thinking when you were you were talking about nuclear war there, and I was thinking about um, the fact that a lot is made of we broke the world, what have we done to the world? Mm. Um, however they, they phrase it in this film and presumably the other films as well. Um, and just thinking about Australia, I was thinking about how, well, to what extent this is a response to what uh, what settlers did to the world of Australia, whether that includes um, Aboriginals or not. And there, there was something... There's a clip doing the rounds on on the internet earlier this week um, of a political commentator called Carla who um, talks about uh, the Aborigines in Australia and how they were, until the late 1960s, they were classified as flora and fauna, which does something horrible for the humanity or non-humanity of these people. But Mm. also it says something about how white people treated... Australia as a place, as an environment. I mean, I think we could be getting into what England did to the world. Um, But I I think it does, I mean, obviously we're talking about Aboriginal thing, but I do think that the the story of Max and Max's character does tie into what I call a generic myth across cultures. You know, if you look at um, the the lone hero, which basically is what he is, You've got you've got the outlaw samurais. You've got uh, the solo Vikings. You've got, um, obviously, you've got Aboriginals uh, going walkabout. Uh, you've got over here, the idea of kind of Saint George over here. Almost all culture, sort of at least uh, sort of long term culture, has the existence of a of a myth of a lone hero. Even America, with its very sort of very short history, has uh, Wyatt Earp. It has the the the, the gunslinger. There's this enduring myth of the lone hero who breezes into town, gets swept up in a, a local 
issue and forced to fix it. And I think the Mad Max is very interesting in that at times Max himself is very ancillary to the action. Hmm. Um, I do think he has the hero's journey in the film, but it's very much uh, Charlie Ruthron's story, uh, and she's very much the driving of the action. But he does tie very much into that kind of someone someone walking past getting pulled into the action. The reluctant hero. Uh, which I think is an enduring myth, A, across cinema, but also across culture. Yeah, and it's something that is is not absent from, from film at all. I mean, you have something like the first Indiana Jones film, which famously has no plot, because if Indiana Jones were not involved in the film, then it would have happened anyway. So yes. the, there's something there's something ridiculous about that film in that he's a bystander to such an extent that he doesn't really matter. Um, and this is sort of taking to extreme this idea of someone who's who's sucked into action. Um, and that's and that I I particularly like that about Mad Max at the end. I mean, avoiding spoilers, but the way that. At the end of the film, Max melts into the distance. Yes. I particularly enjoyed that. Um, I won't say what happens at the end of the film, but the the resolution involves Mad Max, but it also doesn't involve him. Yes, yeah, he, he's... I mean, there's been a, a lot of press about a, a feminist reading of this film. And I think Sam, both Sam and I are, are far too white and male to past judgment on whether it's feminism or not um, I think I, I've seen arguments both for and against it and I think I'm happy to say I'm not the one to make that call uh, but I do think that there's something in the fact that he is a bystander and yes he has more agency than Indiana Jones does but he is still he's he's a catalyst rather than rather than an action itself if you see what I'm saying uh, the, the, he's very much empowering is even the wrong word but he, he is useful and he's a tool that uh, Furiosa uses um, and he's a very cool tool and he, you know, as a filmic point of view he's very interesting and Tom Hardy is is, is a I think a fabulous actor um, who really kind of owns the screen when he's on it so I think he's a good call for that but he is certainly ancillary to decision making at times um, I think there are other elements of the film that kind of tie into the idea of, of myth and mythology, especially looking at um, the bad guy, um, Joe. He's very much inhuman. Uh, he's he's very much, you know, in the same way that sometimes films, bad films, have treated people with disabilities as inhuman. Like, they could easily have made someone like Furiosa uh, with her orphan and disability as an inhuman character but they don't they take someone who is you know in charge and fully bodied and they make them inhuman through the skull mask through the weird white skin and the plastic but you don't get any a backstory to him mm. but he is very much a almost a, a, a boogeyman uh he is uh he's very much kind of uh what's the word i'm looking for here uh, he's very kind of like l- lurking in the distance. Obviously, he is the main threat for the film, um, but because of the fact that it's sort of vehicular films, it's almost via 
avatars of vehicles that they have these fights. He himself never throws a punch. He himself never gets into a fist fight or violence. Except via the avatar of, of the cars. Yeah. It's, uh, I think... it, it was interesting what you were saying about um, disability because there is something made at the very start of the fact that he has a severely disabled son. Mm. But that's like you said. He he's he's the Joe Joe himself is the character that is, is sort of sort of set apart in this way, and he's referred to by various characters throughout the film as the immortal one. Yes, yeah. He he. he in, but internally, in in the text itself, there's a lot of mythology at work. Um, I think, oh, you haven't seen the earlier ones. There's a very telling bit in the end of uh, Beyond Thunderdome where Mad Max comes upon a group of kids um, who were clearly were in a plane crash um, and were saved by uh, Captain Walker, who's the, who's the captain of the plane. And the story of their crash and their sort of upbringing has been passed down these kids and it's become the tale. And to them there's this mythology around this Captain Walker character which they project onto Mad Max um, and I think that if you that will come to this one in my recommendations but that's a great little scene in which you see how this mythology has been born how the, this like some person something happens it becomes a story it becomes history and history becomes a story and story becomes mythology mm. um, and I think it, it, I think you haven't seen the originals but the Max becomes a bit of a mythological character in the world. They know who Max is. Yes. And I think in this one, it's great they removed that. He is just a person. He's just a person who's with them. No one knows the Mad Max name. Um, and in theory, almost if you look at the film, I'm not sure Max knows his name at times. He seems very unsure when he says his name at the end. Um, but that's that's a fan theory about who he is versus uh, actual text. But I'll get into that. Another time and off off air with people who've seen the films. Um, but yeah, I think that there's sort of internally to the text, there's a lot of mythology at work. Hmm. Yes. It's it's interesting. You you were talking about his his not really knowing his own name and the way the way that it's really not important. In, his his lack of importance in the film is underlined by the fact that no one that he's he's just known as fool for most of it. Yes. Um, or bloodbag. Uh, yes. Or bloodbag. <laughs> oh, that that was that was really well done. Yeah. Um, but I think that I mean, as I say, we we started off the conversation uh, talking about Valhalla, um, with the war boys that they're going to Valhalla, and obviously that's a sort of North mythology kind of. Pulled in, but that to me feels like, as I was saying with with um, Beyond Thunderdome, where something be, over time became a mythology for this world. Mm. You feel like they've grabbed bits from different places, um, and they kind of merged into this one uh, one one film. And that's that's something I think is particularly well done, not only in this but in other sort of post-apocalyptic films, other films about the future that. Um, some sometimes you can can go wrong in a film like that if you focus too much on what things are going to be like, 
And yes. there's, a, there's an element to this and to other successful films where they say, well, society is fallen apart and people would hold on to things from the past. So that introduction of Valhalla, which is, as you said, from Norse mythology, something, something very old, something ancient, is combined with um, a, a guy playing an electric guitar carried on the front of, of a war rig, for example. Mm. And that's something this film did very well, was the, the combining of the two of past and future. Yeah, I think that, I mean, if you if you remember from the 90s, there's a show called The Tribe on TV, um, which I, I, I have a deep love for, was well aware it was terrible. Um, and that had a similar sort of thing, but it wasn't as as sort of well thought out. I mean, this obviously you've got like we're all aware the production design of this film is massively over the top and out there. You know, everything is spiky. Everything is end of the world. Everything is a a blind man with a guitar that shoots fire in front of giant speakers on a war rig. And the tribe was very much shooting for that kind of feel of of picking up the bits and bobs and making something new. And it didn't really work in the tribe because the low budget and kids and stuff. It wasn't quite as, as adult. But I think that that's evident in the text and the um, and the set design and almost the sort of the, the meta text of it is the kind of combining of bits and bobs. You know that the, the, the uh, that they've taken some things from here. Like all the cars are made of other things. I mean, even even the war rig that. Uh, Furiosa drives has got other cars put on it as um, sort of guard posts, and everything is made up of the remnants of other things. And obviously, the society is made of remnants of other things. And obviously, the film itself is made up of little bits of bobs from every other myth and other film out there. And it does feel like they've cobbled together all these bits from other places, and it works. And it's it comes together as a whole. And I think that there's. A element of that in the kind of the, the patchwork nature of the story of the set design of the world that kind of ties it all quite knotted together well as i said at the very beginning of this podcast i didn't like the film and i prefer your version of it because that all sounds <laughs> really good i think I, I think that there's i think we've got we'll come on to this at some point if we talk about something like a uh, pacific rim i really like um, pacific rim but it didn't get a great review when it came out but for me, I think it's an incredibly smart film. It's just not... About Pacific Rim every week, whatever our film is. It's amazing. Um, but it, it it has a, a visual intelligence that isn't a scriptural intelligence. Um, but I'm I, I'm pretty sure that's my, my uh, ten years in the film industry talking rather than anything else. But as always, we finish up our podcast with some recommendations. Yes. Uh, so, well, I was just going to go this week because I, I had I had three last week. I'm I'm paring it down. I've just got one recommendation. Okay. In in the vein of chase films and thrillers and action, although not a lot of action takes place, I'd say um, just go and watch Jewel because it's brilliant. That's that that's all for this week. That's, that, Jewel was going to be one of my recommendations. <laughs> ha! Now I'm glad I went first. Uh, I'm going to throw in uh, two recommendations to uh, balance out. One of which is called The Cars That Ate Paris, um, which is a another Australian uh, film and is a heavy influence on the design uh, of Mad Max. There's a car in Mad Max that's covered in spikes all over. 
Um, and that is very much it's a direct lift from the Cars to 8 Paris. It's a 74 film, directed by Peter Weir. It's, well, it, it, it's odd in the way Australian films are, but it's well worth checking out. Um, the other one I was going to recommend um, was Bronson. Now, Bronson is uh, the story of Charles Bronson, a uh, infamous British prisoner, uh, but played by Tom Hardy. And we we could better. just do a whole podcast series around Tom Hardy. We could, as long as we talk about his terrible films as well. <laughs> okay, yes. Uh, but yeah, I think Bronson is, is if you want to sort of see that the the range that Tom Hardy has, uh, that was, he has the madness that you get in Mad Max occasionally here, uh, but a lot more layers to it. I think I, I recommend that as a as a sort of a further reading from from Mad Max Fury Road. Good. Well, I think we've just about hit the thirty-minute mark. That's enough for this week. Lovely, Jimmy. Can I, I'm I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm not going to fall apart this time. Go for it. I will just say thank you very much for listening. Um, do get in touch. We're on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. I'm on Twitter myself as at Life Academic. I'm on Twitter as uh, Kaiju Industries. And we. Look forward to talking about films next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.